Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. George Orwell. Well, welcome back. It is a new week. We are in March now already. I can't believe it. I'm so ready for spring. Oh my God, I'm so freaking over this cold weather. It has been freezing in Washington, D.C. I was in Rochester, New York last week. I um, gave a keynote speech at Rochester Institute for Technology. It was actually a Martin Luther King Day celebration event that I was the keynote for that was rescheduled because back in January, on January 31st, it was like negative 40 degrees in Rochester, New York. It was record cold. Now, you know, those folks that live in cold weather areas like that, they're used to the cold. So it had to be bad if they needed to reschedule. So they canceled classes that day. It was a whole thing. And I'm so grateful that they rescheduled the event for March 7th. It was wonderful. I had a great time. I was really excited because I got to see the tap group syncopated ladies if any of you follow tap dancing probably most of you don't but um syncopated ladies is an all-female all-black female tap dance troupe that is just kick ass they really do a modern take on tap dancing and um which is really cool and i i personally enjoy them because my mom um, many have heard me probably bring this up before, but my mom, she was a dancer uh, from the time she was a kid and danced up until she had me at 21. But she danced on Broadway and at Steel Pier in Atlantic City, which isn't there anymore. She danced in commercials and shows. She did all kinds of stuff and tap dancing was her specialty. So I grew up with an appreciation of not only Broadway and the theater, but specific disciplines like tap. So it was a dying art for a long time. So I'm, I was thrilled to see a group like syncopated ladies bring that kind of bringing that back in a more modern way and introducing it to new audiences so shout out to them chloe arnold and her sister they um founded the group and um they were just they were awesome so thank you to rochester institute of technology amazing faculty and staff there great students i had a wonderful time so um Thank you for giving me the opportunity to give my keynote speech called Stand Up, Be Heard, Living, The Importance of Living the Legacy. So that's that. But it was freezing in Rochester again. I mean, not as cold as it was back in January, but it was like 10 freaking degrees. So I'm over it. I'm ready for spring. I know folks, other people in other parts, parts of the country are over it also. I'm over it. Come on, spring. Rooting for you. Let's go. (laughs) I'm ready to sit back outside on my deck and and watch my pretty birds like this is enough now freezing our asses off oh man so um let's see who's coming up on this week oh so Tim O'Brien Tim O'Brien he is um gonna be the guest this week on honestly speaking stay tuned for him who is Tim O'Brien well I thought with all of the news going on with Trump and Cohen and revelations about his business dealings and the Southern District of New York investigations, things really heating up the money trail with Trump, that Tim O'Brien would be a an excellent guest to talk a little bit about that. Why? Well, because Tim O'Brien is one of the only people walking the earth outside of Donald Trump and his accountant who've actually seen Donald Trump's financial statements and tax returns. Not the most recent ones, but a few years back. And he's on to talk about it. He wrote the book, Trump Nation. He's also the um, executive editor of the opinion section of, for, for Bloomberg News. 
who's also a New York Times reporter. So Tim O'Brien, you can see him on MSNBC a lot as well. I think he's an analyst for them. Yeah. And I just thought he'd be a good person to talk a little bit some with some unique insight into Trump, his behavior and what he experienced when he was researching his book and uh, was subsequently sued by Donald Trump because he questioned Donald Trump's wealth in, in the book. And Trump didn't like that. So great conversation with Tim O'Brien coming up in a little bit. But before we get to Mr. O'Brien, I want to talk about a couple of things that happened in the last week. Uh, did anybody else see that R. Kelly interview with Gail King? Wow. R. Kelly was completely unhinged. I can't say I'm surprised based off of what we know, what we've heard, what we've seen, what we saw in the documentary. Um, but that was fascinating television. Fascinating. I mean, compelling. And and kudos to Gail King for keeping it completely cool through that. If you haven't seen it, it's worth the watch. I mean, if you care about the R. Kelly saga, but it's, um, uh, it was, I don't know how this guy doesn't go to jail this time around. He's completely delusional. He, I, well, again, of course he's innocent until proven guilty. Yes, indeed. But this is almost like the Cosby situation when so many women, we're not talking one or two or three or four, or five. We're talking dozens of women and young girls, teenage girls over the decades. We're talking decades of sexual misconduct with R. Kelly. And his interview, he, he, he's convinced that he hasn't done anything wrong and that this is just an attack on him and people are trying to destroy him. Well, you know, you're, you, he's a sociopath, clearly. He needs help and he should be in jail. So I hope that he, those, those girls and their families and his victims finally get some justice with him because he's a monster and a bastard. And it was on full display during that CBS interview. Wow. They even interviewed the two girls who are still in his, that are still living with him. And uh, man, it's just, it's just sad. It really is like a cult. And these girls, they, um, they claim that they're like, tw- I think they're, one's 21 and one is 23. One of them has been with him since she was 17. Her parents are, have been desperately trying to get her back. They were in, in the documentary also. You see some of their, their story. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's sad, but wow. So keep we'll keep paying attention to the R Kelly saga. He was in and out of jail already twice. Um he couldn't pay his bail initially and then somebody paid it and got him out it was $100,000. And then he owed $161,000 in back child support. No excuse for that. Come on, man. You you can spend all this money on entourages and God knows what the hell else he's doing, but he can't pay your you can't pay for your three kids. Shame on R Kelly for that too. So he had to pay that money. Somebody or somebody paid it for him to get his ass out of jail again. So that's going to be an interesting trial um, if it actually goes to trial. I think it will because he's he's so dug in. He's convinced that this is one big conspiracy against him. So he's going to have a rude awakening, that R. Kelly. Um, what else is going on? Oh, my goodness. 
did anybody um see this Tucker Carlson audio that that came out from like 10 years ago I just heard some of the clips from it so Tucker Carlson he is a he's been in the conservative media circles for many many years he used to host Crossfire he used to have a show on MSNBC he's been all around and now he's been a staple at the eight o'clock slot on Fox News since Fox kicked O'Reilly out for sexual harassment settlements and things um, and so he is part of that Fox News cabal of primetime hosts they have over there. And he is one of the most obnoxious pricks out there. I, I mean, he just really is. And this video, the audio of, of him on, I guess it was uh, Lo- uh, Bubba the Love Sponge. Did anybody remember that guy? He's, he's kind of the poor man's um, Howard Stern, shock jock, low class crap. And... um Tucker Carlson appeared on his radio show back in 2009, I think from 2006 to 2011, were the excerpts from these from these interviews. That's what's out now that's causing all this controversy, where he just made really just obnoxious comments about women calling them primitive and like dogs and saying that he wanted to spank somebody and, and tell her to shut up and know her place. I mean, just obnoxious stuff. But you know what? As offensive as it is, I'm not surprised. That's in online. What's what's the word I want to use? I was going to say on trend, like fashion. It's in line with his character every night on on Fox, and it just goes to show you that these people will do anything to crave attention to get attention. And um, I just you know, it's up to his advertisers. I think any any advertiser that has a, a female consumer base should rethink that because clearly Tucker Carlson um, has an issue with women and he uh, you know the obnoxious things that he said and he's got a daughter you know shame on him but Fox isn't going to do anything I mean well let me not say that unless advertisers start pulling out they won't do anything because he makes too much money and it's only when you get into a legal area then Fox will finally step up and do something. But I'll be curious to see how they handle this. But I suspect he's not going anywhere. And then that Judge Janine Pirro, she's another whack job, that one. Man, I I don't know how anyone can watch like one minute of her. She is off the rails every week. And she went on and on um, criticizing uh, Muslim Representative uh, Omar. Ilan Omar. Now I have plenty of criticisms about her. I think she's an anti-Semite and I don't think she deserves to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee based off of the numerous anti-Semitic tropes and things that she's said. And I think the Democrats have been handling that situation horribly. Um, but but um, I don't think that comments about whether just because she wears a hijab that means that she doesn't respect America or the Constitution. That's just obnoxious and unnecessary and you know anti-muslim it just feeds into that and just because you're muslim and you adhere to certain religious parameters that doesn't mean that you're any less american we need to stop that stop it we don't say that about orthodox jews we don't say that about the amish we don't say that about anybody else so but janine Pirro, i'm not surprised she's not nothing's gonna happen to her either but what people should look up is her husband's association with 
Trump and her friendship with Trump and hmm, the mafia and things like that. But that's for another day. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> South by Southwest was over the weekend. And I've yet to go to South by Southwest. I've yet to be get to experience Austin. Everyone tells me Austin, Texas is, is a great place. And I love Texas. I've been to Dallas. San Antonio is my favorite city. Houston. I have close friends there in Houston. Um, El Paso. I've been to other places in Texas. Never been to Austin. I just haven't had the opportunity. And I've never been to South by Southwest either. I want to go. I want to be on a panel one of these one of these years. So if anybody knows anybody at South by Southwest, I think I'd be really cool on a panel there. So I'm, I'm putting it out there now. Maybe I'll get to go next year. But over the weekend, uh, lots of folks were there. And, and South by Southwest used to really be for just like techie people and like really cool um, and, uh, entrepreneurs in the tech space and and uh, movies and, and the entertainment and stuff like that. But over the years, it's become more and more political because the political people running for office, but especially for president, recognize that cool, hip people and influencers are there. So they should be there, too. And this year, it was really flooded with a lot of political folks. And even CNN had uh, town halls. They did three town halls with um, different Democrat candidates. And um, my buddies Jake Tapper and Dana Bash were down there doing those. And uh, CNN had Jeff Zucker was down there, too. And he had some (laughs) pretty poignant things to say. He pulled no punches about his feelings um, concerning Fox News and becoming state run propaganda, basically. Um, I hear you, Jeff. (laughs) So he was very candid about his feelings about Fox. But that's also because of what Fox and, and, and their relationship with Trump. I talk about I talked about this last week on the podcast the very incestuous relationship between Fox News and Donald Trump and the feedback loop that goes on, the echo chamber and just how influential Fox is basically even making policy with this administration. It's ridiculous, unprecedented and dangerous, in my opinion. Um, And that New Yorker long form piece by Jane Mayer last week was, if you haven't read it, read it. It's um, in the New Yorker by Jane Mayer. And it's all about Fox News. I forget the title right now off the top of my head, but um, pretty explosive stuff. And it just talks about how they hid stories. They knew, you know, Fox News had the Stormy Daniel story and they didn't run with it to protect Trump. Yes. And also, um, it was pretty well known that that Trump did not want to see the merger between AT&T and CNN's parent company, Time Warner. And it looks like, according to the story, that Trump directed Gary Cohn, who was the economic advisor at the time, to push the Department of Justice to block that deal. That is such a huge abuse of power. Huge! Because of a huge, huge, (laughs) in Trump's parlance, he's just using his, his power as president and abusing it to take out personal vendettas. This isn't the first time and it's not going to be the last because that's the kind of person Donald Trump is. This isn't real estate deals in New York, but he doesn't seem to get that through his head. When you're president of the United States, you don't get to do those kinds of things without consequence. Thus, the oversight investigations we're seeing pop up all along in the House by the Democrats. And they and they should. As long as it's, you know, 
um, not an overreach as long as they're legitimately investigating things. And this is one of them. And so Jeff Zucker had some things to say about that whole thing. And I don't blame him because it, they were trying to hurt CNN. It's the only reason why. And there was no reason for that merger to be blocked. No business reason. There was no trust issue. The, the SEC had no problems with it. It was approved. And then it was up to the DOJ to appeal that. I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole thing shouldn't have gone to litigation in the first place. So I get it. And I get the frustration. Um, during the uh, during those town halls, though, that CNN um, sponsored, Pete Buttigieg, he is the the um, mayor in uh, Indi- Indian. Indianapolis? Wait, is that where he's the mayor? In, in Indiana somewhere. <laughs> no, he's um mayor of um, South Bend, South Bend, Indiana. That's right. And he was uh, one of the town hall participants. And you know, he's a newcomer. He's young. He's in his 30s. And um, he's, uh, you know, I think for the Democrats, he's going to be a, a formidable guy in the future. I mean, I don't think he's ready for president now. He's probably auditioning possibly for vice president. But he, he gave some he gave some good answers on some things. So, uh, you know, he's one of, I don't know, what are we up to 20 now? Democrat candidates, for goodness sakes. It's just going to be tough for people to, to um, differentiate themselves from everybody else when they have almost no name recognition. And, um, you know, Buttigieg is a tough enough name to say in the first place. But I, I, you know, again, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with his policies, but presentation wise, he wasn't hard to listen to. He actually was not, which is where it starts, because if you don't present well, people are never going to listen to what you actually are proposing. So presentation matters. Um, And uh, I thought he did a pretty good job for for some of the unknowns, some of the other ones. I'm like, whatever. But, you know, he was pretty good. And that leads me to some new polling that's out now. And it's super early. Let me just warn everyone. It is really early. We are like 20 months away from the 2020 election. But the election obviously is beginning. And when you hear polls, I always tell people, remember, they are a snapshot in time. Things can change from week to week. We saw that with the how the polling was off. Nobody predict. Nobody really thought, except for one poll. I think it was Rasmussen actually uh, that that Trump could actually win. Most polls had Hillary winning by like four percentage points, things like that. So national polls really don't mean shit. It doesn't matter. We don't have national elections. We have state by state elections. We still have the electoral college. So really pay attention to individual state polling and watch the trends. Trends are what matter. It's kind of like the stock market. Like one day in the stock market, unless it's like a huge crash, um, like Black Monday or something, um, you know, the stock market usually it fluctuates, but trends are what matter. Same thing with polling. But it's instructive to see kind of where we are at the time, the measurement of who's who feels how and see how that trends. It's kind of, it's a good metric. But state by state polling is really what matters. So a couple of new polls came out that I found interesting. Um, Iowa is a really important state, right? Iowa caucuses, they're one of the first. And um, 
you know, Iowa is a more blue state, but the caucus goers for both Democrats and Republicans, they're like the hardcore activist folks. They're the ones that are the most involved and they pay attention. You know, people in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, places that have early voting that are early in the voting timetable, those people tend to be more, pay more attention to what's going on because their states are in the spotlight earlier in the election process. So in Iowa, um, Joe Biden actually leads. And I'm happy about that because I've made no secret of it. I hope Joe Biden wins the Democratic nomination and beats Donald Trump. I think he's the only shot Democrats have in, in laying a glove at all on Donald Trump, honestly, so far. Nobody else has impressed me at all. Um, they're too busy fighting over who's going to be more socialist in the next, which is the wrong way to go. And um, none of them have the level of experience or know-how, especially in foreign policy or the gravitas that Joe Biden has. I'm sorry, they just don't. So I'm all about it. And, you know, I'm like half a step away from starting Republicans for Biden. <laughs> Not really, but I will support Joe Biden. I don't care what he said in the past. I don't care. We He's at this point... He's the only person that I think can bridge some of the divide here and bring in moderate Republicans and independents away from Donald Trump. Anyway, I'll be talking about this more as the election turns up and we see, I mean, you know, becomes more um, heated and, and more happens. It's still super early and he's not even in the race yet, but I, I'm like 95% sure he's going to jump in minus a health scare. He's in. Um. Anyway. So Biden, Biden's not even in yet, but he leads in Iowa, according to the Des Moines Register poll that just came out. Um, but he's he's up there with Bernie freaking Sanders. So Joe Biden is at 27 percent. Sanders at 25 percent. Everybody else is in single digits like one. Like I think Kamala Harris was at 8 percent. Elizabeth Warren, 7 percent. And then everybody else is at 1 percent. So, again, it goes back to name recognition. Everybody knows. I mean, Joe Biden has like 100% name ID because he was vice president for eight years with Barack Obama. And then Bernie Sanders already ran. Everybody knows them. Um, interestingly, the breakdown, though, demographically, over 45, people who are over 45, Joe Biden wins 32-17 over Sanders. More support, 32% to 17. Under 45, Bernie Sanders beats Biden 32 to 23. So there's clearly a generational divide there. Well, yeah, because polling has also shown that more and more younger people, gen, um, millennials and things, they're more and more okay with this kind of socialist um, Medicare for all stuff and all these things that just people don't have any idea how we're going to pay for it, but it sounds great. That kind of populism stuff, you know, stick it to the rich and tax cuts for billionaires is bad and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you start getting down into the nitty gritty of policy and how you how you're supposed to actually implement these things and then how much it's going to cost for this free college, free health care, you know, ain't nothing really for free when the government is running it. OK, but um, <laughs> there is no money tree on the West Lawn of the Capitol. I say that all the time because it's true. People don't understand the government runs off of tax dollars. The government doesn't make money. They spend yours through taxation. So it has to be paid for from somewhere. And I'm just not in favor of the whole redistribution of wealth thing. Um, you know, there are limits to that. 
So anyway, um, so that would probably explain the generational divide right now with people who support Bernie Sanders and versus Biden. Um, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. I'm fascinated by that. Fascinated by the fact that a bunch of 20 somethings are obsessed with Bernie Sanders, who's like their grumpy grandpa. I don't, it's just, it's a fascinating dynamic to me. Um, so that's in Iowa. But something else in the Iowa, Iowa poll that I found interesting was that 83% of Democrats, they want the, in a candidate, they want the ability to unite and win versus just being angry um, at Donald Trump. So they want someone who has the ability to unite. Okay. I say that's Biden, but we'll see. Um, what was the other one? Oh, Republicans. So Trump has 81% approval in Iowa from Iowa Republicans. But here's what's interesting. 40% of Iowa Republicans are hoping for a challenger to Trump. That's interesting. That's not normal, by the way. So, and even an 80% approval at this point within the party, that's, you know, that means that there's some chipping away. Now, something else about Iowa, Iowa's being hit disproportionately. Iowa farmers, soybean farmers and folks like that from these, this ridiculous tariff crap that Trump has been imposing with China and places like that. It's, it's hurting farmers out there. So maybe they're finally feeling it and realizing Oh, well, maybe this protectionist, these protectionist policies aren't so great. Trump's trying to buy them off with $12 million in subsidies, but that's, um, you know, that's no way to live either. So I found that very interesting. 40% want to want a challenger. 19% are unsure. I guess those are the people who don't pay attention. Um, another poll that's um, interesting, Florida. Politico just came out with the story that Trump, who won Florida, by the way, by only 1.6%. It was really close in Florida. He won 48.6% of the vote last time in 2016. It was close. But he's underwater in Florida now. He is underwater. He he only has a 40%, a 43% favorability, 52% unfavorable in Florida. That's what we say underwater. Anytime you're under 50%, that means you're underwater. 40% want him reelected. 53% do not. Those aren't great numbers in Florida for Trump. And Florida is a huge spring uh, swing state. It is a purple state. And you pretty much have to win Florida if you have any chance of winning the presidency. That is the golden goose of swing states to win. So those kind of numbers in Trump's second home state where his precious Mar-a-Lago is um, aren't good. But that's just now. Things can change. But um, that's interesting. Pay attention to what ha- what's happening with, with Trump in Florida. Uh, I'm going to come back to Mar-a-Lago in a second because Trump was there over the weekend again at Mar-a-Lago for the 21st trip since of his presidency there, costing us tens of millions of dollars for him to go and golf and all that. But I'm going to talk a little bit about that with Mar-a-Lago because that place is a national security nightmare. And there's all kinds of grifters and God knows who else that have money to gain access to Trump when he's there. Did anybody see those pictures of Trump like hanging out at the omelet station at, at, at Mar-a-Lago or sitting down like looking all 
Obviously, he didn't have his makeup artist with him because he looked a mess. I mean, but he just hangs out at Mar-a-Lago and just talks to whomever. He's very accessible there. Some might think that's cool. Others may should be horrified by that because God knows who's telling him what. So I'm going to get to that in a second because there was a huge story over the weekend in the Miami Herald about this Chinese woman, Cindy Yang, who owned a bunch of um, day spas down there and uh, her access to the president and what that and and some of the shiftiness going on there. I'm, I'm going to get to that in a second. One more poll set of poll numbers that I think are important. Then I'll talk about this craziness going on in Florida, Michigan, another key state. Republicans hadn't won Michigan in a while. And Donald Trump, that was one of the three states that put Donald Trump over in, in 2016. It was Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Now, Michigan, Donald Trump only won by less than 11,000 votes. That's it. So all those folks that stayed home in Detroit, those people who didn't come out and vote this time around because Barack Obama wasn't on the ballot and they hated Hillary Clinton, Democrats, by the way. Yeah, it's your fault, folks. <laughs> it's all your fault. No, but that's true, though. A lot of people stayed home. They did not vote because they just, this Hillary was a just terrible candidate. And she didn't even bother to campaign in Wisconsin. So people were like, well, screw her there, too. And they voted for Trump. Donald Trump only won by 77,000 combined votes in three states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So right now, if the, if the election were held, Donald Trump would not win Michigan he would not win Florida. He wouldn't win Wisconsin, I don't think. So in Wisconsin, I mean, I'm sorry, in Michigan, only 67% of Republicans said that they would vote for Trump again. That's terrible. He gets 85, 90% approval in most other places by, Repu- from, uh, uh, by Republicans. Not in Michigan, only 67%. 49% said that they would definitely vote against Trump. 31% said they would def only 31% said they would definitely vote for him. So 49% that's overall not not Republicans. But the 67% of Republicans said they're not going to vote for Trump again. That's interesting. But 49 overall, that's everybody said they definitely are not voting for Trump. 31 only 31% said they would. 57% of women overall against Donald Trump in Michigan. So they have a women problem and they know it. The Trump administration, uh, a Trump reelection campaign knows this also. They are really beginning to kick off their campaign efforts. They have a hundred million dollar million dollars raised already. That is an exorbitant amount of money, but they know they have a woman problem and suburban independent problem. So, watch for the Trump campaign to to start focusing in on those things if they if they know what they're doing. Um, but they're also getting ready to double down on this attacking opponents and calling people names and doing what Trump does. You know, polling is show that that turns people off. They don't want that. Recent polling, I think it was a CNN poll, showed that 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 Republicans want Trump to focus on his positive accomplishments, not the name calling and the crazy. We'll see. He steps all over his messaging all the time. They have a good news with the with the economy to point to, and that's about where it ends. Um, but for Republicans, you know, judges and all of that, okay. But he's not going to do that. We already know this. If that CPAC speech was any indication of how he's going to run in 2020, it's going to be, oh, my God. 
but that's, uh, I said it on CNN last week, that CPAC speech, speech, that two hour rambling mess was a blueprint for what he's going to do in 2020. Because you know he lives for the rally. He lives for those for those performances on stage at those rallies and the clapping seals supporters that he has. He, he That's oxygen for him. And the crazier he acts, the more they lap it up and they love it. That's why he hasn't expanded his base any. Because most people who are watching this are going, what the fuck? And you know, that is not what we want from a president. So that's that. So now moving on to Florida. Well, 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 this story over the weekend, woo-wee, I was out and about with my mom and running some errands and the story popped up on Friday and I, we were sitting actually in the parking lot of Home Goods. <laughs> I've been starting to do some, um, some spring cleaning and redecorating in our house and sometimes I get the bug and I go to Home Goods, much to my husband's chagrin. Um, and, and I saw this and we, I sat there and read the whole article to her and we were just like, what? What the hell? So yeah. So everybody probably heard about Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, getting caught up in this vice operation in Jupiter, Florida, that busted this this day spa, this Orchards of Asia day spa. It was in like a strip mall, one of those like massage foot massage places. And they found out that he was paying for sexual favors. They call it a rub and tug place gross I don't even like to say that it's so gross but that's what they called them my mom was like a what I was like a rub it's like imagine trying to explain that my mom and I are real cool but still she was like oh what that's what they call that I'm like yeah gross anyway um so yeah so it was one of these happy ending spas and Bob Kraft who is a billionaire by the way um was paying like $40 to get happy endings at his at these at this massage parlor in Jupiter Florida come to find out this busted open this this huge ring of prostitution and sex trafficking with um, Chinese nationals owned by, and there was like the owners of this, this day spa owned a couple of others. And guess who else owned this day spa? Cindy Yang. Her name is Lee Yang, but her American name is Cindy. So Cindy Yang, she owned this Orchids of Asia day spa. It used to be called Tokyo day spa. But she sold it in 2013 to the current owners who are the ones who got busted. But she owned a bunch of South Florida massage parlors. They started like a school. There was a whole thing. The article is in the Miami Herald. I suggest you guys go and read it if you haven't. The level of detail. It's unbelievable, this tangled web. Well, why do we care about this? Because this woman, who was not politically active prior to... 2015 has all of a sudden become a big donor to the Trump campaign and become very active in Republican politics. Why? Now she came here from China 20 years ago. And from my work on Capitol Hill, I know that the Chinese intelligence services use all kinds of people in all kinds of different ways to try to get gain access and influence in the United States in the United States government and business areas. And they are notorious for this kind of stuff. And when you have someone that runs shady businesses like this, not only the the horrific nature of the sex trafficking part of this and the prostitution part. Now she was not caught up in this current um, case in Jupiter, Florida, because like I said, she sold it. 
But in the Miami Herald article, it shows that there were some, uh, there's like these underground websites that were talking about her day spas, the ones that she owns currently, her and her husband, and how they had a reputation for potentially being able to get um, uh, sexual favors at her places too. But then she seemed to move away from that into other businesses like these Chinese cultural exchange businesses. And they're, they're, most of the time they're front operations. I'm just going to be flat, flat out about this. I've learned this from my work in Capitol Hill and de- dealing with China and how they operate. Um, you know, there's no hard proof of that yet. But Mother Jones also wrote a story over the weekend following up on the Miami Herald story that showed that this Cindy Yang, not only did she create and operate businesses that sold Chinese business executives access to Donald Trump and his family at Mar-a-Lago, because there's pictures all over the place of this woman, this Cindy Yang, at Mar-a-Lago, at um, uh, governor's events, uh, election events, fundraising. There's pictures of her with Don Jr., with um, Pence, with Sarah Palin, with Kellyanne Conway, with um, uh, Dan Bongino. So people that are elected, people who are close to the to the conservative movement, people who are influencers in, in the conservative movement. This Cindy Yang has pictures with all of them. So what she does is she goes and she pays to get into these fundraisers. They're like, you know, $1,000 a head, $2,000 to get in luncheons at Mar-a-Lago and all of this so she can take snap pictures and because she's Asian they look at her like oh we have a minority so I believe me I've been to plenty of these kinds of events not during this administration I won't go anywhere near them but over my 20 years in Republican politics I mean it happens on both sides but they go to these events they see people like oh yeah we need to take pictures with them we'll take pictures with you and so she goes they may not even know obviously they didn't know who she was or what kind of operation she was running I'm hoping and then, you know, they get caught up in pictures, just like that Maria Butina, Butina, that Russian redhead with the NRA. She had pictures with all kinds of people, too. And then when she, they found out that, oh, shit, she's some kind of Russian operative. I don't know her. I take thousands of pictures with people. I don't know everyone. Well, fairness, they probably don't. But that's what happens sometimes when they just kind of let people take pictures with them. Well, there's a picture of Cindy Yang at President Trump's Super Bowl party at Mar-a-Lago. She snapped the picture sitting right next to him at a table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the owner of the rub that used to own rub and tug uh, spas, for God's sakes, who now un- and then started businesses that were selling Chinese executives access. That's her. That was her pitch. It was influence peddling. Oh, yeah, I can help you and I can introduce you and get you gain access to the president of the United States. All you got to do is come with me to one of these Mar-a-Lago events. What? You have to understand something. Businesses in China, there's like no private business in China. If you are a businessman worth your salt there, everything goes through the Communist Party. It's a communist country. So you have to be very careful of this. Well, she's also an officer of two groups that are tied to China's communist government. That's another thing that Chinese do. They set up nonprofits or charities or educational groups they are all government fronts. Cultural, it's for cultural exchange. Bullshit. It's for counterintelligence operations. Now, are there some legit ones? I'm sure, but most of them are not. And she sits on the board of, or as an officer of two questionable Chinese organizations. Now, 
She also founded a Miami-based nonprofit that allegedly promoted economic and cultural exchange between China and the West in coordination with senior Chinese leaders in the U.S., whatever the hell that means. Well, what are these organizations? Well, let's look it up. Like I said, this is in the Mother Jones um, story over the weekend written by David Korn and some and, and others in the byline. Um, David Korn does great work, especially with uh, Russia and, and Trump, and he wrote a book about that too. But um, in 2016, Yang participated in the founding of the Florida-China Peaceful Reunification Promotion Association, whatever the hell that is. And she's pictured in photographs of its inaugural meeting, which was attended by China's Houston-based consul general and deputy consul general. She also was named the vice president of this organization. The the China Association of Science and Technology, it's another organization she's uh, involved with here, they call them, they describe themselves as, quote, a bridge that links the Communist Party of China and the Chinese government to the country's science and technology community. In 1992, this China Association for Science and Technology was founded in the U.S. in New York and since has, has since formed affiliates in locations including Washington, D.C. and South Florida, which is where the Cindy Yang is based out of. Now, on the website of this organization, Yang is also listed there as a vice president and pictured at several events organized by the group. Now, in 2015, she formed a charity initially called the Overseas International Female Organization that was changed to Women's Charity Foundation. And in that Miami Herald story, they talk a little bit about that and um, how they would put on pageants and things, but some people thought it was just a front for bringing in um, Chinese girls for trafficking. Um, the year that this, this charity, this women, women's charity was founded, Yang, as its representative, was invited to attend the welcoming ceremony for three Chinese warships docked in Florida, alongside with the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. and China's Houston-based consul general. First of all, I thought it was bullshit that there were any Chinese warships coming and docking in the United States. That was, I remember when that happened. That's ridiculous. Well, that was just China's way of trying to, you know, um, soften relations. But you can't trust them as far as we can throw them. They are not our friends. They are hell bent on defeating the United States and becoming a superpower. So, but uh, I'm very leery of Chinese government anything. And like I said, after years of working on Capitol Hill and my access to information on that, believe me, you'd be leery also. But this Yang is all up in this with Chinese government officials and she's running around Mar-a-Lago taking pictures with the president and powwowing with people in government and set and, and using this access and selling that for money. This is a fucking problem. Okay. This is a big problem. And if she's getting away with doing this, God knows how many other people are doing similar stuff. Mar-a-Lago is a potential national security nightmare. Because we don't know who's coming in and out of there. It's a private club. Yes, the Secret Service is there and um, people are supposed to be screened, but they can only go but so far. If the president doesn't cooperate, if, they, if, the, if the staff doesn't cooperate with listing who's there, there's nothing they can do about it. It's at their own risk. You know, we already know how loose Trump is with security information and classified information. 
I mean, when he had the Japanese prime minister there and his whole entourage, he was t- conducting like top, top secret missile launch strikes in the beginning of his presidency. And people remember that. And he goes around and just like talks to people and asks them opinions on things. And the nonprofit in uh, independent investigative group ProPublica, they do great work on this stuff. They did a an expose on how Mar-a-Lago, rich Mar-a-Lago members were influencing Veterans Affairs Department policy and all about how these three people were talking to Trump all the time at Mar-a-Lago and making suggestions about things that, of course, would you know enrich them in some way. And Trump was like, yeah, all right, when said notes to the Veterans Affairs Secretary, David Shulkin at the time. I mean, it was crazy. This is crazy. This is not how policy should be made. It's corrupt as hell. But that's what's going on at Mar-a-Lago on a regular basis. So we should pay attention to this. It's not okay. It's not normal. Donald Trump and his people constantly go on and on about the Clintons and how corrupt they were and a crooked Hillary, blah, blah, blah. That ain't shit compared to what Trump is doing all the time. Oh my goodness gracious. Not excusing the Clintons and their transgressions, but they lost. They're not in power anymore. I mean, let it go for the love of God. Enough already with them. It's just a deflection away from all of the swampy corrupt stuff that Donald Trump is doing on a daily basis, him and his, and his damn family. So it's, it's nuts. But Mar-a-Lago, I'm telling you, you know, besides the fact, what the hell is Trump doing there so much in the first place? He spends way too much time there. How much time? Well, the funny thing is, there's actually a website called trumpgolftrips.com. <laughs> I was actually trying to look up like, you know, because I know Trump obviously golfs a lot or he's at one of his golf clubs a lot. And so I was looking it up and yeah, trumpgolfcount.com. That's what it's called. I'm sorry, not t- Trump golf trips. It's trumpgolfcount.com. You can go there and you can see in real time how much time Trump has spent at a golf course, how many actual rounds of golf we're aware of and how much it costs. So what are the numbers by right now? Well, Donald Trump has spent 86 days at Mar-a-Lago. That's 21 trips that have cost the American taxpayers $41 million in flights just to Mar-a-Lago. $91 million in trips to all of his properties. Because remember, he's also got that golf club that he spends in the summer in Jersey, my home state, at Bedminster. That's insane. <laughs> okay. He spends he has spent eleven percent of his time in office at freaking Mar-a-Lago. He's been to he spent fifty-eight days at Bedminster in Jersey. So basically every weekend. And we don't really know what's on his schedule. That's another thing. I think it was ProPublica that sued to try to get the list of guests to see so the American people can see who is hobnobbing with the president. We can't get the guest the guest um, logs for the White House either, by the way. And the Obama White House was also pressed for that information because people, the American people, have a right to know who's coming in and out of a people's house for sure. And they eventually relented and they they gave up the logs so we could see. 
But the Trump administration's like, screw you. And they haven't. And they haven't done that with Mar-a-Lago either. So we have no freaking idea who's coming and going and who the president's talking to and what he's saying. And I think that's a disgrace and dangerous, potentially dangerous. Just one of a list of things that this president does that are potentially dangerous that we need to continue to pay attention, pay attention to the Cindy Yang story. You know, some of it's kind of funny, salacious and, you know, looking at the people and who she's hobnobbing around with and, you're kind of like, oh my God. But then when you think about the national security implications of this, of her potentially being in a Chinese intelligence operation for influence into this country, then it makes you really, it puts it in perspective. No proof of it directly, but it stinks to high heavens, as my grandmother used to say. Well, I think that's time. A good note to bring in this week's guest, Tim O'Brien. So this week's guest on Honestly Speaking is someone who has been covering Donald Trump since 1990 and is still maintains his sanity, <laughs> which is amazing to me. And who would that be this week? It is Bloomberg executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion, MSNBC, NBC political analyst and author of Trump Nation, Tim O'Brien. Tim, welcome. Hi, Tara. Thank you for having me. Given everything that's been going on lately, I really thought it was important to have you on now because, like, as I just said, you have actually been covering Donald Trump since 1990. And that, I think that you're one of the few people. I might point out. Yes. Episodically, because yes. if it was on a day-by-day basis, I would have withered long ago. <laughs> yes, you probably would not still be with us. I always yeah. say, I always cite the uh, fact checkers, specifically Daniel Dale, who for uh, people who deserve like Nobel Prizes because they yeah. imagine having to fact check Trump every single day. And that is what your life consists of. I, I God bless them. They are doing no, Nobel Prizes work. And, and crates and crates crates of wine yes. I would think <laughs> yes yeah. so so Tim recently we've seen Donald Trump um, really just become more and more unhinged in his tweets in his public statements I mean that barn burner of a whack job speech last week at, that he gave at CPAC was just another oh my god moment as someone who really does know the ins and outs of of what Donald Trump's businesses consist of how he behaves you you really have an inside look at this what have you what have been your thoughts recently when you look at this what do you think what comes to mind immediately well i think anytime he begins tweeting tara excessively it's usually because he's concerned about something or afraid of something so we've seen this obviously anytime the Mueller investigation is heated up or anytime former insiders at the trump organization or in the white house come out publicly and critically about him. Those raise real reputational threats in his mind. And he's aware, I think, in the back of his mind about some of the, the legal threats that could possibly emerge out of all of this. So I think that's one, that's one way of interpreting why he does what he does on social media. I think when he goes to events like CPAC, I think it's, it's something more than simply because he's panicked or in a corner. I think 
at his core, Donald Trump is a performance artist. He can't really be understood unless you see him first and foremost as a performance artist. And he he gets a lot of sustenance. He gains a lot of sustenance by appearing in front of people who are laudatory. I think mm-hmm. that's why if you think if you think back to when the Access Hollywood tape first came out and there was this big meeting up in Trump Tower about whether he should drop out of the race. And he went down to the street and walked out and there were throng at, at Jared Kushner's suggestion and there were throngs of Trump supporters out there and he sort of soaked it in and he decided not to drop out. And I think he goes to CPAC, you know, years later for the same reason. You know, he's just fumbled the government shutdown. Uh, he, he's, he's been cratering in opinion polls. And the Mueller investigation may be coming to an end, but obviously investigations elsewhere are, are igniting. And I think he feels cornered. So he's going to his base to get that kind of emotional connection that he thrives on. And, you know, that's a that's a great point. And it's something that I've said for years as I've watched him per- perform. It's a, it's a great term. It's perfect for what he does. He is a performance artist. That's exactly what those those rallies are. They're they're performances, they're stand up routines, except that he's the most powerful man in the world. Now, it's no you know, there's consequences to this behavior and the things that he says, which is what scares the hell out of me every single day. Um but you you also, which goes to another subject that you wrote about recently, which was the resignation of Bill Shine. And for those who don't know, Bill Shine was basically the brain behind Fox News' opinion side of things. He controlled the morning shows. He controlled the, the nightly opinion shows. And he really was the one who shaped Fox News into the what I consider state-run propaganda now. Um, and he left Fox under a cloud of controversy after Roger Ailes and all of that and went over now, well, not anymore, but over last summer became the White House communications director, which seems to be the 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 cursed job of the White House between that and Chief of Staff. No no one can stay are in there, that are job. Are there no uncursed jobs at well, the White House? I guess that's you, true. Can you, can you tell me which ones aren't cursed? <laughs> um, yeah. Any job any job that requires management of Donald Trump or his messaging, yeah. you can forget cursed. it. That's right. Cursed. cursed. Ivanka. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. You wrote in, in Bloomberg, you, which I thought was was eloquent and apropos. You said Fox can edit, dodge, ignore, gloss, and play act when they put their shows together. The White House has to deal in real time with the material it gets. It can't really spin Cohen's testimony or a failed summit. It can't always really make everyone, except for the, pre- the already converted, believe that the president who causes a government shutdown, bungles a health care overhaul, creates fiscal sensibility, Dances with Russia, <laughs> oh, craters, I'm sorry, fiscal sensibility, dances with Russia, traffics in racism, doesn't read, doesn't work hard, and doesn't care, is something other than the embodiment of those things. That, that about sums it up. What, but what happened with Bill Shine? Why'd he quit? Well, well, I think, you know, Bill Shine, as, as we just joked about, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's the truth, joined a White House that has extremely high turnover rates, higher than any... Democratic or Republican predecessor. And that's because Trump, as a manager, uh, does not have a long history of building strong teams. He runs, he essentially operates a cult of personality. And the people who exist long in that orbit are, are the ones who tend to give up their own independence or aren't actually an A list player to begin with and are there either to have their, their resume stamped or, or spend their retirement days. But they're not there to create great policy and dynamic change. And I think that's one of the things about Trump 
to me that is a nonpartisan, non-ideological issue. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you need good management in the White House to get mm-hmm. things done. That's right. And you need to be able to keep people on your side who are loyal to you, who are talented, who can give you feedback and help you think clearly so you can accomplish good things, uh, regardless of your political persuasion. And Trump doesn't do that. And Shine is the latest example of somebody who just got stuck into the White House meat grinder. Uh, he's had you know, five other predecessors in that job. Uh, Scaramucci lasted 11 days, famously. <laughs> um, one, one full Scaramucci, so, right? It's now, it's a joke yeah, now. It's yeah. a time frame, time unit of time. Yeah. One Scaramucci. Yeah. How many, how many Scaramucci's <laughs> can you last? And um, uh, so, so that's the obvious thing is that, they, that most people who come in there don't have longevity. I think the thing that makes Shine interesting on top of that, and, and you hinted at this in, when, we, when we began talking about this particular topic, is that there was real, there's been real synchronicity between the White House and Fox News. Fox News, particularly the opinion shows, I think the Fox News news shows are populated by a number of people who, who a lot of people, many people who care about the facts and um, are fair-minded people. Yes. But Shepard the Smith, Chris Wallace, not, you know, Smith, Brett Baer. Brett Baer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, but that's not their brand, really. The stuff that, that, that is the glue of the relationship with their audience are the opinion programs. And that's what the brand was built around, and Ailes knew that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Bill Shine was in charge of using the opinion programs as a leading wedge, I think, for developing this very uh, sticky relationship with his audience, which is almost like a therapist more than a newsmaker. And, and essentially, I think, you know, the way I described it is it, it was it's a mixture of hogwash, hype and cynicism. <laughs> and that should have made for an easy transition into a White House that also traffics in hogwash, hype and cynicism. <laughs> yes. But the difference was Trump is someone who wants to be portrayed as a saint. And he is obviously further from being a saint than any president who's inhabited the Oval Office well, in the modern era. Hold on now, Tim. He he did sign Bibles. He did sign Bibles. <laughs> the guy who never goes to church, by the way. And, For and those I don't who don't know, read a right, Bible, right, right, right. You know? He he didn't even sign. Uh, he didn't he even open sign it. Things you've actually read, right, and written, right, or at least open know? it, like and and act like you you've read or or uh, something. You know. Oh, for those who don't know, over the weekend, Donald Trump visited the <laughs> sites in Alabama where uh, horrible tornadoes went through. A lot of destruction. People died. And while he was there, he was literally signing people's Bibles um, at the disaster site. And I just found that to be horrifying. And so the jokes you could imagine were just endless with this. And thus the reference. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. No, no, no. It's a good reference. I think that it's, you know, how do you package that kind of behavior? And it's, you know, this, this exists classically in corporate America where a company will have bad news, uh, disastrous earnings, or a mistake. And, and, and I think immature or, or untested leadership will expect their PR people to clean it up as if it's the public relations people's fault that it occurred. And in Trump's case, he's constantly looking for the people around him to clean up his mistakes. Uh, and his mistakes aren't just um, the small boar calling Tim Cook, Tim Apple, for example, <laughs> something he won't let go of. He keeps, even today as we speak, he right. keeps resurfacing and Twitter to his own detriment. You know, you can't 
package that if you're if you're a PR or a communication specialist. But on the re, on the bigger things, on on the policy that matters, I think to us as a community of Americans, even if we even if we differ ideologically about how best to tackle these problems, we all know we should do something about immigration. We all know that we have to think sensibly about the federal budget. We all know we have to find an efficient way to, to deliver health care to Americans. We all know we live in a diverse community of people of, of, of different color and different gender and different nationality, and that we need to work together as a community because those differences make us strong. And Trump fumbles those big issues in tragic ways. And he's getting criticized for it. And he expects people like Bill Shine to clean that up. And I think this gets back to that very salient point you made in the beginning at the top of our, our talk together, which is um, you can't you can't pretend in the White House that you have the time to edit or gloss over or recast the truth that catches up to you too quickly in the White House. That's right. And, it, I, you know, Trump's entire persona, business history, personal, everything has been built on a mountain of bullshit. And when you are in the office of the presidency, where you're under the constant scrutiny of a free press, yes, in America, we still have a free press, as much as Donald Trump would like to destroy that. The reason is because the press and those of us in it hold him accountable for that, which leads me to uh, and, and his ability to lie over the years and get away with it catches up with you also when you're a public official, which leads me to another uh, subject matter that um, I just think is is that people need to hear about um, something special also about you other than being a great guy, Tim, and a great writer uh-huh. is that you are one of the few people outside of Trump's accountants who've actually seen some of his tax returns and financials. And true. that was and that was right. That's absolutely true. So people they do exist. They are out there and there are people who have seen them. But the only reason why Tim was able to see them was because Donald Trump sued him for writing his book, Trump Nation, where where Tim uncovered or questioned whether Trump was actually worth billions of dollars. And that went to the heart of Trump's manhood. God forbid anybody thinks he's not as rich as he is. And he sued Tim for five billion dollars when you were a uh, reporter for The New York Times. Right. At the time, that was 2005. Am I right about he, that? He sued me in, you know, the book came out in 05 and he sued me in 2006. Okay. And he lost in 2011. So it went on for a number of years. Right. So during that, and and this lawsuit is very instructive. And I actually went back and reviewed some of the writings on this and some of the deposition parts that were public during the election. Because to me, it was instructive of what kind of a pathological liar Donald Trump is. And there's examples during the deposition, including the one where he talks about his net worth fluctuates with his own feelings. And I just thought, like, I I can imagine you guys all sitting there during this deposition thinking, holy shit, this guy is out of his mind. Um, But that just is a microcosm of how he operates every single day day. Talk a little bit about what you discovered during that lawsuit and how that applies to what's going on today and the way he's governing. Um, So the interesting thing about that lawsuit was that I think about three pages of a 250 plus page book dealt with this game he's played over the years about 
inflating or lying about how much money he has. And I had very good sourcing within the Trump organization. I had very good documented information that really called into question uh, how truthful he's being about all that stuff. I, the book presented what he said was his side of it. He said he was worth $6 billion. People that I'd interviewed thought it might be closer to 250 to $350 million. He sued me essentially for the difference. That's why he sued me for $5 billion, <laughs> which was a lot bigger than my advance, by the yeah. way. And, um, uh, but because he sued me on financial grounds, we got access to his tax returns, his bank records, his business records. In the course of that, we deposed him for two days in December of 2000. 2007, 16 hours of, of deposition. Oh my um, God. He tried to get that sealed at the end of the case. My attorneys, I had wonderful attorneys. I had David McCraw at the New York Times, and then Mary Jo White and Andrew Ceresny and Andrew Levine of Devo Boys and Plimpton. Um, Mary Jo was a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of That's New right. York. And they just destroyed Trump and his legal team in that litigation. And during the course of that deposition, they caught him lying about 30 times or more about a whole array of different subjects from how much he had sold his condominiums for to what he got as speaking fees to whether or not his golf courses were profitable on and on and on and on. And uh, that became something, as, as you pointed to, it was a Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. of sorts during the campaign for people who wanted to get a handle on Trump's very loose and often dangerous relationship with the truth. Um, but the other reason it's, it's significant is because it, it reflects why his attorneys now are loath for him to sit down for a deposition for someone like Rob, with someone like Robert Mueller, because they understand that him sitting for any kind of testimony under oath is a minefield. Yes. Because he can't, he is someone who lies by nature. It's in his nature to lie, even when it's not in his interest to lie. Even his, and, even his allies, even his friends admit that. I mean, Chris Christie recently came out talking about the, the Tim Cook incident. For those who don't know, Donald Trump had a meeting last week with uh, some business, uh, some entrepreneurs and, you know, big, big executives. And Tim Cook, who runs Apple now, he was there and he flubbed his name. He called him Tim Apple. Not the first time he's done this, by the way. He did the same thing with the head of Lockheed Martin. He called her Marilyn Lockheed. But anyway, <laughs> and so, um, so obviously people, you know, Know, made fun of this. Tim Cook even changed his Twitter handle to Tim Apple. It was pretty funny, you know, but Trump has the an inability to be self-deprecating. So instead of just letting this go, he has made this into a huge deal. He told a bunch of Republican donors while he was at Mar-a-Lago over the weekend not to believe the video that we saw. It's on video, folks. Don't Where believe the auto, that. Audio is crystal clear. Right. It's uh, it's indisputable. Yeah. And he's telling people, don't believe that. I actually called him Tim Cook Apple, and you just didn't hear the cook. So Chris Christie was like, you know, well, he and lies. Well, he doubled even, down today. Right. I don't know if you saw his tweet yes. today. Yeah. In which he then said, fake news, still jumping on this issue. I was trying to be efficient and use fewer words, so I just said <laughs> Tim Apple, which is different from the story he told over the weekend. Right. And this is such small beer. Right. This the is point not is that like, it, you know, even right. though Vonka made shit? light of it, no one cares. <laughs> right. Other than it's like a faux pas, and we goof on public figures who make right. who mistakes, cares? and on you go. But, but, he, but, but he obsesses over it because it's pathological for him, which, to to your point, that's just one yeah. small example. Very but go revealing, ahead. actually. Yeah. Very. It's very revealing. And, you know, I've often said there's you only need two real lenses to understand what informs most of 
Donald Trump's actions. It's either self-aggrandizement or self-preservation. It's rarely anything other than those two things. Mm -hmm. And the self-aggrandizement comes through in performance art, how he revels in being at center stage in either political debates or public appearances of any sort, um, and why things like the Tim Apple comment stay with him because if he feels like he has been made to appear foolish on a public stage to him that's the end of the world and because it's... that's where he lives in his mind and in reality and then the other side of the coin the self-preservation we see that in his in his reactions to the Mueller investigation and his willingness really to throw anyone under the bus save for probably only his closest children probably only Ivanka because I, I, I don't know. If, I think the other two are expendable. Um, <laughs> I don't think that Jared either. Jared's not really blood. So no. I think that would have, that's have right. a short lifespan, Th- too. That's yeah. right. Um, which, which leads me to the, the, the part about his, his tax returns and, and the idea that Donald Trump is, well, this, this facade that Donald Trump was such a great businessman. And we all, those of us who follow this or pay any attention, know that he's actually a terrible businessman. Great bullshitter. Great marketer, and terrible businessman, promoter. Right, know, and, and very good at that. Absolutely, absolutely genius at that. It got him elected president. But um, when you saw his tax returns, and unfortunately, folks don't get excited. Tim cannot tell us what was in them. You're bound by an NDA on that. <laughs> That's right, because the lawsuit got I thrown out. Speak generally, though, to right. why I think he doesn't want them to be released. Go, go, good, go for it. Without speaking specifically about yeah. what's in them. Sure, go ahead. Why is he so scared well, to I, release I his think, tax returns? I think um, it, they would show that he's not as um, authentically um, philanthropic or charitable <laughs> mm-hmm. as he's made out to be. Uh, it would give people a sense of how robust his businesses are, which may be at odds with what he has said in the past about his businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think in the current context, the thing that I think is of great interest to members of Congress and investigators is obviously those tax returns would uh, have indications of money that he's earned overseas and where that money's coming from, whether or not um, it's you know been declared in a proper way, and whether or not it um, it raises important questions about the president of the United States being financially conflicted because of his own business relationships and financial history, to the point where he can't really make independent and effective public policy because of those financial conflicts. And that right there, folks, is why presidents since Nixon have had no problem releasing their tax returns in order for the American people to see that they are not, in fact, conflicted business wise or any other way. So the American people can make an informed decision as to who they're voting for and whether that person has the best interest of the country as their number one priority or their own personal interests. So Donald Trump not releasing his current tax returns is really a big deal. And those that keep harping on that point are doing so to emphasize exactly what you just said, Tim, because this guy has been involved in dirty business dealings his entire career. I'm from New Jersey. I don't know if you knew that, but I'm from Jersey. So that. yes, yeah. I'm not, that would, would explain a lot. Right. So, you get it. <laughs> so I get it. I know what he did with, with Atlantic City. I know about his unscrupulous business his original practices. original partners in Atlantic City. Yeah, the mafia. The mafia. Can, can you talk you about know? 
about that just a little bit? Because people may not really understand how ingrained Donald Trump was. Just, you know, quickly, because we only have about six minutes left and I want to talk to you about something else. But I want people um, to really he, understand you know, he, this. Was, uh, casinos got it legalized in Atlantic City in 1976. Within a few years of that, uh, they were throwing off tons and tons of cash. Of course, Trump was attracted to that, but he had no history actually operating casinos. He needed to get land down there that he could use to build a casino on. And his first partners he, that he built a, an assembly of properties with so he could build a casino um, was a guy named Ken Shapiro, who was a bag man for Philadelphia's Scarfo crime family, mm-hmm. and a labor racketeer named Danny Sullivan of Irish descent. So you had both the Irish and the Italians and the Italians in there on this one, um, uh, who was a labor racketeer from, from New York and had been, uh, you know, involved with the mob for quite a long time and had worked with Trump on on the Grand Hyatt project. Those were his two partners. That's how he gets into Atlantic City. He later dissembled about that when he spoke to casino regulators. Uh, They decided not to pull his license because I think uh, Atlantic City regulators at that time wanted sort of a bright, shiny new face to come into the industry. But the facts are that's whose partners were when he started there. That's right. And they also that also translates over to his projects in New York City, including Trump Tower, where he used mafia labor, basically, to lay all the concrete. And anyone who knows in New York, like you can't not you can't back in those days, you couldn't build without some kind of mafia labor union influence going on there. Which was true of every real estate yes. developer, by the way. The right. difference with Trump is that he got sweetheart deals on some things. His sites avoided some of the strikes that other developers experienced. And he didn't go out of his way to avoid some of these contacts in the way that others in the real estate business did. He almost relished in it. And let's not forget his mentor was Roy Cohn, who was a notorious mafia lawyer on top of other uh, horrible things that Roy Cohn did, but that was also one of the things. And Trump used to hang out with mafia guys all the time. He he liked it, which also goes shows a little bit. It illuminates into how he runs the government and he runs his his business and now the government in the White House almost like a mafia crime syndicate. Uh, well, with, and the people he surrounds right, himself with, that's like right. Michael Cohn, right, for that's example. Right. Let me ask you. Speaking of Michael Cohn, that's actually a good natural transition, Tim. Um, when you were watching the Michael Cohn testimony and you heard Cohn say. Um, that Trump was a racist, sexist, con artist cheat. What were your thoughts? Did you nod your true, head and go, yep? True, true, <laughs> yeah. and true. True in every every box trick ticked off is true. Right. Michael Cohn is not a perfect messenger. He's a thug. Right. He's a liar himself. The sentencing memo that the Southern District issued uh, uh, back in December uh, the the government officials with whom he was cooperating said they didn't really feel that he had made an honest conversion to the bright side of life and that that was the reason why he was deciding to cooperate. Uh, they were very put off by what they themselves described as, as kind of incessant lying. Mm-hmm. Having said all that, Michael Cohn still spoke to things that every reporter who's covered Trump for a long time, every investigator who's looked at him, and the public at large knows to be true. Obviously, the things about race and lying, those are, those are demonstrable. The issue specifically that, that Cohn also brought up about Trump inflating the value of his assets to get bank loans yes. or lying about the value of his 
assets to secure security pol or insurance policies or get favorable premiums. Uh, that's something that's going to have to get explored more by investigators. But I can tell you that it, in that context, on those things, it's not a question of if. Uh, and I know this from my own reporting. It's just a question of how often and how much and when. And I think that that's what Cohn has essentially put landing lights on the money trail yes. around Trump. And the investigations that are surrounding him now, you know, if Mueller uh, ends up having stayed very much in the um, Russia collusion, collusion yeah. and obstruction categories and left financial malfeasance and possible high crimes and misdemeanors to others, I think you're going to see the next leg of these investigations. Both there's, you know, there's three state attorney general's investigations. Uh, there's there's five different House committees looking at him. And then there's the Southern District of New York. And the one thing that binds all of those myriad probes together is they're looking at the money trail. And I and, guess that would answer the question of what, what do you think is more threatening to Trump? And I've, I've often said that I think it's the Southern District investigation versus Mueller. Given the money trail, I've always said follow the money with Trump because it's been dirty money for a long time. But I'm going to ask you in our, in our last question, because I know you got to go. Um, it's a question that Justin Amash asked Michael Cohen, and he had a tough time answering it. But I'm going to ask you, what truth do you think Trump fears the most? That he'll be found out that he'll be discovered for essentially being a house of cards, that um, he's not as smart, he's not as wealthy, he's not attractive, and he's not as, tal as talented as he has spent six decades trying to get the public to believe. And one of the realities of the Trump presidency is these things are getting stripped down and stripped down mm -hmm. piece by piece. Yep. And Trump lives in fear of being found out. Yep. Fear of being exposed for the fraud and con that he actually is. And he's just a scared little boy that didn't get his father's approval when he was younger. And thus he's built this persona to try to convince people that he is all of these things that he's really not. And he's doing so now from the Oval Office. Tim O'Brien. Thank you. Tim O'Brien. Such, you, such a pleasure. Um, be sure to check Tim out on MSNBC and NBC. He's also a great columnist uh, and an executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and his book, Trump Nation. Even though it was written 10 years ago more, it still applies. It's a good foundation to understanding why Trump does what he does and what he's been doing for a long time and what he's doing now. So thank you again, Tim. Appreciate you. Thanks, Tara. Great to be on. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard me right, the Mennonites. 99% of them are, of course, kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Wednesdays, 10-9 Central on WGN America, the new TV series, Pure, is based on the true, ev true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head. And the good pastor, along with his wife, they'll do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Narcos meets Witness. So get hooked on Pure. Wednesdays at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America.
WGN America is available on Direct TV channel 307 or Dish Channel 239 or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. Get hooked on Pure. Big thank you again to Tim O'Brien for joining me as this week's guest on Honestly Speaking. Uh, That's it for us. But before I go, uh, I wanted to do a real quick feel-good story of the week. I haven't done them in a while because I've had a a couple of long interviews with folks and um, the the feel-good stories kind of got got nixed as a result of the length. But this week, I wanted to bring something up because of my home state, New Jersey, um, had one of the uh, lottery winners This guy won $238 million. He was a single ticket winner. And he's a divorced guy, out of work. Uh, He's 54 years old, just went through a really nasty divorce. And he actually almost lost his lottery ticket. I think it was Mega Millions. Yeah, it was Mega Millions guy. He was in the convenience store and he got distracted by a phone call. And he left the store without taking his lottery tickets, the ones that he just bought. So he left them there. This was in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, which is out in West Jersey toward Pennsylvania. So a, a mystery stranger, a stranger who was in the store, found the tickets and turned them into the store employee. So good Samaritan, right? So the next day, um, the guy, his name is, um, his last name, oh, Mike Wierski, that's his name. This is the, the, the lottery winner. Mike Wierski, he goes back to the store and was like, oh shit, I left my lottery tickets. Did anybody turn them in? And sure enough, the owner was like, yeah, here you go. Somebody, somebody, you know, put, brought, brought them to me for you. Come to find out the freaking one of those tickets was worth 230, and I'm sorry, $273 million, $273 million ticket. So this guy, he's looking for that good Samaritan who turned the ticket in because he'd like to share some of his money with him, which I thought was really, really nice. So I hope he finds them. As of right now, he has not found that person, but I hope he does. And I'm not quite sure how he can verify. Oh, maybe there's surveillance. I'm like, how do you verify that as the person? You would hope that that person, well, that they had enough character to turn the tickets in, that they'd be honest about that it was them. But anyway, good luck with that. But good for Mike uh, Wersky. Something else about that, though, is that there's now um, uh, there's going to be some legal action because his wife, I don't think the divorce is final. So his ex-wife may be coming for that lottery money. I want to see how that works because I don't know how she's entitled to it. I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, but not that part, but the rest of it, the other part of it, that's the feel good story of the week for me. So I just wanted to throw that in there a little bit. Um, Anyway, uh, that's it for me for this week. So be sure to follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara and at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. Thank you for all your comments. Thank you for your support. And next week, I'm going to have a special guest, Yvette Nicole Brown. She is an actress in Hollywood. She's been in a lot of different different things, and um, she's, she's a hoot. So um, Yvette Nicole Brown's definitely going to be on next week as one of my guests. Um, bring a little pop culture, a little Hollywood into Honestly Speaking next week. So stay tuned for that. Have a great week. <music>